Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for joining us this afternoon as we welcome His Excellency Penpa Tsering, the Sikyong of Tibet, for an address and a Q&A. I'm delighted to be sitting here before you in a traditional Tibetan kata um, given to me in the Standing Committee by His Excellency. Without further ado, let us move on to this afternoon's event. His Excellency Penpa Tsering is the Sikyong, or President, of the Central Tibetan Administration, the Tibetan government in exile. Prior to his political career, His Excellency was the Executive Director of the Tibetan Parliamentary and Policy Research Center and the representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the Office of Tibet in Washington, DC. He was elected as Sinkyong in 2021. Please join me in welcoming His Excellency Penpa Tsering. Thank you very much for this uh, opportunity. I want to say thank Charlie and uh, all the council members for organizing this. Maybe I'll begin by uh, giving you a short information on Tibet, because sometimes we live under this illusion that people know about Tibet. But uh, very often, people don't know much about Tibet. Uh, Tibet is located in, in the heart of Asia. It's north of India, west of China, south of Mongolia, and East Turkestan. So, Tibet area, as I was coming here uh, to Oxford, I asked one of our staff to check the area of UK. And it's only about uh, 240 something square kilometers. And Tibet is about 2.5 million square kilometers. So Tibet is almost 10 times the size of UK. And we normally call ourselves the land surrounded by snow mountain ranges, which we have Himalayas in the south, Karakoram in the west, Kunlun in the north, and so many mountains and valleys all over Tibet. And uh, the first Westerner, I think, uh, who wrote a book in 1906, called the Frontier Outpost. In his book, one of the chapter was titled as the Roof of the World. So maybe people started calling Tibet as the Roof of the World from that time, or maybe earlier, because of Tibet's altitude. Then the Asians called Tibet as the Water Tower of Asia, because Tibet is source of major rivers, uh, in that region. And today, Chinese environmental scientists, and I think now even Westerners have started calling Tibet as the third pole, North Pole, South Pole, and Tibet Pole, because the Tibetan plateau has the highest amount of glaciers and permafrost that feeds all these major rivers that go from Tibet to Pakistan, which is Indus, then you have rivers that are coming into India and Bangladesh, the Brahmaputra or Sangpo. Then you have the Irrawaddy going into Burma. Then you have Mekong going into Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam. And the two major rivers that flows into Tibet, uh, into China from Tibet, from the Tibetan plateau, are the Yalu and the Yangtze. And Yalu is the cradle of Chinese civilization. 
So if the Chinese government don't care about Tibet's environment, it's going to be very, very detrimental for the 1.4 million, 4 billion Chinese. Now, any impact on China, on Tibet, on the Tibetan plateau, in terms of ecological and environmental issues, will have serious consequences to all the downstream riparian countries. People are already estimating that between 1.8 billion to 2 billion people, either directly or indirectly, related to the rivers that come from Tibet. So we are talking about the region which is most densely populated in the world. And another 10, 20 years from now, I'm sure there will be a lot more issues about water security and food security in the region, apart from many other issues that confront that region. So just with that brief uh, introduction of Tibet, today's subject being uh, Tibet is an unresolved conflict. So this, uh, we took it up, even though we follow the middle way approach or the middle way policy. Middle way is a Buddhist concept, which is uh, uh, a polarization of views. So we don't go to the extremes. You always stay in the middle on any opinion, on your views, anything you do. So this polarization of the Tibetan situation before Chinese invasion of Tibet, and after Chinese invasion, we are looking for a middle way where the Tibetans can have the freedom to preserve their identity in terms of language. Because our language is very rich. We just came out with a 223 volumes of Tibetan dictionary, so which is one of the most voluminous dictionaries in the world. And that is how rich Tibetan language is. And Tibetan language also came from India, did not come from China. Tibetan Buddhism also came from India, not from China, even though Buddhism went to China before it came to Tibet in the 8th century. So Tibet is a repository of one part of ancient Indian wisdom, at which we are very proud of having preserved in its pristine form. We must have had the biggest transliteration house in the world in 8th century when we translated everything, Sanskrit, into Tibetan, things to do with Buddhism. So Tibet has been an independent country. There's no doubt about it. Uh, in fact, uh, I have two books, which we left in London, which I wanted to show you, show to you. There are a lot of histories written about Tibet by Tibetans, and those could be considered propaganda, because China is always involved in propaganda. Uh, this is in after we took over, even though we follow the middle way approach to seek a mutually beneficial, negotiated, lasting solution with the People's Republic of China, there has been no traction on the dialogue or negotiation since 2010. There were some rounds from 22 to 2010, but since then there was no traction at all. <clears throat> so that is why after I took over, as Sikong of the Central Tibetan Administration in May 2021, we decided to change the tactic a little bit. We decided to focus on the historical status of Tibet. And because of our effort, there was already an expert's testimonial 
in the U.S. Congress about the historical status of Tibet and also to counter China's disinformation on Tibetan history. So if we go back in history, just briefly, from 7th to 9th century, Tibet was a huge empire. So Tibet even conquered the capital of China, Xi'an at that time, not Beijing or Nanjing. And then we even went south or west up to Samarkand, today's Uzbekistan. So that is how big, that was how big Tibet's empire was. And then the advent of Buddhism in Tibet completely changed Tibetan way of thinking and way of life from 8th century onwards. So between 7th and 9th century, we were a huge empire in Central India, uh, Central Asia. And then from 9th century, Tibet disintegrated for almost 400 years. But there was, that was also a period when we had a lot of religious influence from India. That was before all, almost all Buddhist texts were destroyed in India by the invaders and the marauders. So all of those texts have been moved into Tibet. So these four centuries, many of our scholars visited India. You can imagine going from Tibet. Uh, we have remained isolated for so many centuries because it's not easy to walk over mountains and you know, down valleys. How many times? It's not just one mountain or one valley. So not many Tibetans have come out and not many foreigners have also come into Tibet. So <clears throat> these 400 years up to 13th century, from 9th to 13th century, Tibet disintegrated. By the end of, by the beginning of 13th century, there was the Mongol influence again in Tibet from 1220 onwards when Timur Lane, following Genghis Khan, he came to Tibet, but Tibetans were disintegrated. They were not united and they all surrendered. So it was easy. Uh, you know the Mongols, how they invaded, how many they killed uh, to, to make sure that the others just surrender because of fear. Uh, that, that was Genghis Khan's uh, tactic in uh, ex expanding his empire. But we didn't have much problem with Mongols. Then the Mongols were looking for a religious or spiritual teacher. So they came to Tibet, they identified three people, and they chose one, which was Sagya Pandita Rinpoche. So Sagya Pandita Kumayanze was the first, he was honored by the Mongol king. They built the relation during Altan Khan's time. And then that was followed by Kublai Khan, who invaded China much later. So 1254, Kublai Khan handed over the reins of running the Tibetan government to Sagya Pandita's nephew, who had become the preceptor of the uh, emperor. So he was handed over the responsibility to rule all of Tibet. And since then, the Sagas ruled for about 100 years. Uh, we developed this very unique relationship called the priest and patron relationship. So after the Sagas, there was another 100 years of Pamudupa dynasty. So that is from you know, the end of uh, the Yuan dynasty, what China calls as the Yuan dynasty, is only that period when the Mongols ruled China. We already had relations with the Mongols even before Kublai Khan invaded China and became Yuan. So the Mongols were there even before the Yuan and after the Yuans. But in Chinese history, it's Yuan only that period. Then that was followed by the Ming dynasty in China. 
from 1368 to 1644. And during that period, we had three hegemonies, or four hegemonies. One was the Pamadukpa, then the Rimpumpas and Sangpas, Devachangpas. They ruled for about 300 years. So the fifth Dalai Lama, who was the first Dalai Lama to take over political and spiritual leadership of Tibet, uh, took over the reins of uh, Tibetan government in 1662. 1662. During the Ming period, we didn't have much relation with the Chinese, except in terms of uh, exchanging titles and things like that. The, the Ming took over China, uh, the Qing took over China in 1664. But the fifth Dalai Lama had already ascended the throne of Tibet in 1642, two years before the Qing came in. But the Qings are real, not real Chinese. The Chinese don't consider Manchus as Chinese. If you watch Kung Fu movies of uh, the late history, then you'll find that Manchus are always the antagonists in those Kung Fu movies, and Chinese are always the protagonists in these movies. Um, that is the societal perspective of how Chinese people think about the Manchus, not as Chinese. So, so even today, it's a huge debate, uh, academic discourse amongst the uh, Chinese scholars as to who is a real Chinese. Uh, is it only Han, or does that include the Mongols, or the Tibetans, and the Uyghurs, and the Manchus? If that is the case, then they can claim over half of the world of what Genghis Khan uh, invaded, right? So that part of the history, till 1911, the, Ming, the Qing ruled China, and then the nationalists took over. And the brief period of Chinese intervention in Tibetan history are the 1720s and 1790s, when there was uh, invasion from Bhutan on Tibet, and then Chinese came to rescue, but they didn't have to fight. Uh, so now they claim, Chinese government claims that, oh, the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama should say that Tibet was t part of China since time immemorial. Now, when is time immemorial? I don't know how to count that. And sometimes they say, or oh, the Dalai Lama should say that Tibet is part of China since antiquity. Then earlier, they used to say 7th century, then 13th century, 18th century. There was no way the Chinese government can prove that. So now, lately, two books have come out, one by Michael Van Wald, one Prague. He was a scholar. His last assignment was in Stanford and he uh, studied the Tibetan history. He mixed, uh, he uh, con connected with about 80 scholars from Inner Asia. Unfortunately, Western nations depend largely on Chinese sources for Eastern history. So he contacted many scholars over eight years, and he came out with this book about two and, two and a half years ago. And in this book, he establishes the fact that whether it's the traditional or conventional relationship between countries, whether it's the Tibetan relationship with the Mongols or the Ming or the Qing, <clears throat> Tibet has never been considered part of China. And even as per international law today, Tibet has never been part, cannot be considered a part of China. Now, there's another Chinese professor called Professor Lao Hantun. He's in San Diego. He's retired. He was a professor at the City University of Hong Kong 
before, he was not a historian, he was an economics professor. But he was always intrigued by this question when China kept saying that Tibet is part of China. So he was, as a young boy, he was intrigued. After he retired, then he started looking. His approach was totally different from Michael's. He looked at only the imperial Chinese historical records. And he establishes the fact, without a doubt, that the imperial China never considered Tibet as part of China. So now I go travel around the world, meet with governments, foreign ministries, and we inform these governments that if you continue to say that Tibet is part of PRC, you are going against international law. Because we have only one agreement with PRC, that is the 1951 17-point agreement. And that was also abrogated. And that was forced upon us after aggression on Chamdo in October 1950, and this 17-point agreement was signed May 1951. So under international law, any agreement post-aggression is null and void. So if international law has to be applied, then it has to be applied to Tibet as well, because we are part of the international community. Right? Then the second thing we tell governments is that on one hand, you keep saying Tibet is part of PRC. On the other hand, you keep saying we support negotiation between the representative of His Holiness Dalai Lama and the Chinese government. Now, Chinese government rules Tibet with an iron hand. And the whole international community keeps repeating the statement that Tibet is part of PRC at the behest of the Chinese government. Then we ask them, where is the reason for China to come and talk to us? if you are supporting negotiation, because these two positions don't go together. These are contradictory to each other. Then we ask them this question. Do you know any other cases in this world where one country had invaded another country and then you ask all other international community to say that this is part of us? I don't know of any. Even within China, does the Chinese government ask other governments to say Mongolia is part of China, or East Turkestan is part of China, or Manchuria is part of China. They don't. Why? Because the Chinese government knows that they have no legitimacy to rule over Tibet. That is why they are trying to get legitimacy from the international community. And I tell the international community, you have no right to decide for us. Even when we were independent, Others decided for us. British India decided for us. China decided for us. Because we became part of the great game. Now even when we are in exile, everybody is deciding for us. And I want to ask them the question, has anybody read Tibetan history from Chinese perspective, from Tibetan perspective, and from independent Western perspective? I don't think so. So if you have not read Tibetan history, don't understand Tibetan history, then how can you make this statement that Tibet is part of China? So that is why we say it's still unresolved. Uh, it's unresolved and it, is, it has to be resolved. And we are looking at middle way, which is a non-violent approach. We are Buddhists, uh, we are 
committed to nonviolence. His Holiness has been guiding us through so many years now. And now it's incumbent on me to make sure that Tibetans don't take up violence. Now, after this Dalai Lama passes away, then who will guide us? Who will lead the Tibetans inside Tibet? So far, His Holiness has always been saying, if you take up violence, I will not stand up for you. So in future, if the Tibetan-Sino-Tibet conflict is not resolved peacefully, then there may be consequences for China. You know, if you want a peaceful, whether we like it or not, it's not a matter of whether we like it or not. Tibet is located there. We cannot lift it out of there and put it somewhere in the Pacific or Atlantic. We have to live with the Chinese. We have to live with the Indians. They are our neighbors. And we have been buffered for so long. Till Chinese occupied Tibet, there was never ever a war between India and China. And only after Chinese occupied Tibet, there was the 62 war. And now, even now, a lot of belligerents on Indian border. So I'll stop here, and then maybe we'll continue with the other 2020 thing. The book is also called Tibet Brief 2020. <laughs> because his cover, now he's going to change the cover, because otherwise it takes a lot of time to explain the cover itself. It looks like you're going to an optical hospital to check your eyes. It's very blur, and then it becomes clear, 2020, the Tibet's history. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Your Excellency, for that fascinating um, talk. Um, I found it really, really interesting. And you're, you're right in that it flies in the face of a lot of the accounts that are given by um, the PRC and even by Western governments about the history of Tibet. Um, despite that, though, the position of the Tibetan government in exile in relation to both the Dalai Lama and to China has changed substantially over the last 60 years. Um, uh, and in 2017, His Holiness the Dalai Lama did state that, as a long, uh, that the idea of Tibetan independence is no longer feasible or something that he, uh, he thinks he, he strives for. Does this reflect the position of the government in exile? Um, and does it reflect the position of most of the Tibetan diaspora that you interact with and represent? Uh, we are fully committed to following His Holiness the Dalai Lama because he is wisdom personified. Whether we can live up to his expectation or not, it's a different matter because we, we, we have to work a lot to reach there. Um, since 59 till about 1973, His Holiness was also asking for independence because that is what Tibet was. Then you can imagine he started thinking about the middle way approach and confabulating about this since 1973-74. And 1973-74 in comparative history in China was the throes of cultural revolution when a lot of things were destroyed and people were getting killed and, you know, everything old was being destroyed. So there was this huge question about the survival of our identity. So that is one reason why His Holiness went for middle way, because if we are not able to preserve our identity, then there is no difference. There's so many people who look like us, small eyes, flat nose, there's so many people in that region, you know, so this makes no difference for identity. So the whole idea is His Holiness started also appreciating the European Union as a concept. Now that Brexit is out, UK is out, but otherwise 
His Holiness always felt that common interest is more important than individual interest. If it is not for European Union, there may have been already some wars in Europe, because you already had a lot of history of war in Europe. So this is also one example, prime example, where His Holiness takes inspiration for, for, uh, from in terms of the middle way, where Tibet is a landlocked country. On the south is India, on the east is China. So even if Tibet is independent, we will have to depend on India or China for economic development. And since China is already uh, developing in that sense, we thought we can gain economically from China. And China has about 250 to 300 million Buddhists who have been deprived of practicing uh, their religion. So they always look up to Tibetan Buddhism also for some inspiration. And His Holiness and the Tibetan masters, Buddhist masters, can definitely play a very proactive role in filling that spiritual void that Chinese uh, Buddhists feel. So this is a mutual beneficial situation we are talking about. But if you think about the larger geopolitical, geostrategic importance of Tibet in that context, then the repercussions could be larger. Because if Tibet can maintain a neutral status or a peace zone or something of that sort, then you can think about the whole geopolitical changes that can bring in. You know, why does China have this all-weather friend with Pakistan, friendship with Pakistan, and always have problem with India? You know, so all these things will also get impacted if Tibet is able to retain some kind of a status there, which can bring more stability for the whole region. But more importantly is the environmental question. So. Does your organization now see its central goal as being to campaign for the cultural continuity of the Tibetan diaspora or to campaign for uh, greater or preserved political autonomy for the special autonomous region of Tibet? No, our responsibilities are dual. <clears throat> One is to find a solution for the vexed Sino-Tibet conflict and the other is to look after the welfare of the Tibetan diaspora community. So as we were discussing just before coming here, we are only about 130,000 Tibetans in exile. Some people believe that Tibetans are there everywhere with their colorful flags and all that, but our numbers are very little. And some governments feel they, they put a lot of restriction on Tibetan refugees coming to the West. We tell them we are not that many in number. <laughs> Don't worry, we are not going to fill your country. So in that sense, uh, Yes, uh, the Tibetan, uh, our responsibility, the first responsibility is to talk with China, to reach out to China and see how we can resolve this. Until such a time, we'll keep continuing to uh, monitor the situation inside Tibet. Now it has become much more difficult because before 2008, we used to receive any number between 2,500 to 3,000 Tibetans every year coming through Nepal into India. Now, since 2008, when there was large-scale demonstrations inside Tibet participated by people from all walks of life, this was one of the largest demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations in Tibet. Since then, less people have been coming out. Now, they put a lot of restrictions in Lhasa alone. Without a guide, you can't go over the Himalayas, escape, you know, through the escape routes. So they have done away with all the guides so that people from other regions cannot go on their own or by themselves. 
And over, over and above that, we were talking about the situation in Nepal also. I'm not allowed to travel to Nepal. I'm in the blacklist, again, at the behest of the Chinese government. And the intrusion of the Chinese influence inside Nepal is so much that it comes even down to the immigration officer. The immigration officer has my name, but no photograph. So they deported two people with the same name as mine back to the United States. So this is the level of uh, control we are talking about. So right now, in the last few years, in 2020, we had only five people from Tibet. 2021, only 10 people. 2022, only four people. So because of this flow of people, it affects our communication also. And then governments also put on uh, sanctions on Chinese apps like WeChat, which Tibetans both inside and outside use. Tibetans inside cannot use WhatsApp and Telegram and all those others. They can use only WeChat. So those communications have also been affected. So we will continue to do that. We will continue to advocate with the international community, but we know our limitations in the sense that if Tibet issue has to be, the Sino-Tibet conflict has to be resolved, that can be resolved only by talking with the Chinese. That is one reality. If China breaks up like Soviet Union, that's another story. Right? Then the second reality is that, of course, we reach out to governments, to US, to Europe, everywhere, but, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, we have to understand that no single country will leave aside their national interest for Tibet. So that is also a reality. So considering these two realities, then we keep our expectations. If our expectations are too much, then we'll land up in too much disappointment. So some people also keep asking us, do you still hope? I said, if there is no hope, there is nothing. If you lose hope, then our cause will also die naturally. So that's our responsibility also to take care of the diaspora community. Uh, we have started this voluntary Tibet advocacy group, which is a new initiative by this cabinet, to involve as many young Tibetans as possible in advocacy work. The challenge is that our community is getting dispersed. The opportunity is also that our people are now there in more than 25 different countries. They speak the language, they understand the system, so they can be very good advocates for our cause. So these are some of the issues that we are taking up, and also the fact that we have to keep our community united, even though small, is the biggest strength. What would the ideal resolution <clears throat> to the Sino-Tibetan conflict be from your perspective? Well, based on the middle way approach and the middle way policy, then we have to find a negotiated solution, and which, which could be anything because people are talking about self-determination, but then self-determination under international law, you need the UN to monitor and all that. With China allow that or not is a different matter. So what we are at least hoping for is to return back to Tibet where we have freedom to practice our language, our religion, our culture, our way of life, and also protect our environment, which is not only important for the Tibetans, but for the whole region. So this is in our mind, but how much China is going to offer when the time comes or not, what will be China's situation, what will be Tibet's situation, 
because we have studied so many autonomous arrangements around the world and we know for a fact that whoever is in a greater position takes away most of the powers. So, <clears throat> of course, we cannot measure the competencies on a scale, but then you know how it works. When somebody is weaker, then they trample upon you and you get less. Let's see how we, it, this thing goes on, but uh, we have to work towards a solution that is agreeable and lasting, both for the Chinese people and the Tibetan people. Whether we like it or not, as I mentioned before, we have to live together. And as neighbors, we can't always be fighting with each other. You know? And as human beings, everybody is looking for happiness, not suffering. So those ever-dwindling numbers of Tibetans who are fleeing uh, China and, and Tibet, what are the reports they give you of Tibet? Is it being increasingly um, influenced by the Chinese government? Are there large numbers of, uh, of, of forced migration of Han Chinese citizens? Are <laughs> monasteries being demolished and the language being stopped? Or has that not accelerated in the last 10 years? Now, well, one of the... Presently, President Xi Jinping's policy is one nation, one culture, one language, which means eradicate all other cultures of other nationalities. And that is exactly what is happening inside Tibet. Now, China has, according to some reports, China has put all Tibetan children between the age of 6 to 18, more than 78% of the children, in boarding schools, where they are kept away from their families, away from their language. They are taught Chinese history, Chinese ideology. So China is hell-bent on sinicizing or sinification of Tibet and other minorities, nationalities. So in that sense, we have, there is no political space. People often ask us as to why we don't hear from inside Tibet these days. Because there's nothing you can do Right now, we are talking about the Orwellian gridlock system where China is using all kinds of artificial intelligence to monitor and control, control, control. Everything that the Chinese government do is control. So you do any activity in the name of national security, you can get arrested, you can get jailed, tortured, whatever. So political space, there's no political space. If I live in the capital, if my friend Charlie is coming from a rural area, whether either he lives with me or in a hotel. If he lives in a hotel, they can track you through electronic identification systems and geolocations. And if you live with me, and if you undertake an activity that, is, that China considers as politi political, then it's not just you. It's my whole family who's going to suffer. So that's kind of gridlock that Chinese government has created. 158 to 159 people have already self-immolated inside Tibet. There was a time when in 1963, one Vietnamese monk burned himself and it became, Vietnam became an international issue. 159 people have already self-immolated inside Tibet, hoping against hope that the Chinese government will pay some attention to their plight or hoping against hope that the international community will come to their rescue. But it has not. But we are not dampened by spirit. This, what keeps us going is the spirit of the Tibetans inside Tibet. 
Then there are issues about um, the boarding schools, which I already mentioned, which is very detrimental. Another 10, 15 years down the line, it's going to have serious consequences for our children. And then there are the larger environmental issues where China is building a mega dam, twice the size of Three Gorges Dam, which is the biggest in the world right now, on this place called the U-Bent, when the Brahmaputra takes a southern turn into India. And in this place called Pemakui, they are building a dam which can produce three times the electricity, hydroelectricity that Three Gorges is building. Then you can ex imagine the extent of the dam on the upper reaches, where they're going to destroy a lot of flora and fauna of that region, which are very unique to Tibetans. Uh, and these are going to have serious consequences. If some, and the whole Himalayan region is a seismic zone. If something happens to the size of that kind of a dam, what is going to happen to people in Arunachal Pradesh and Assam and Bangladesh? They are all going to be washed away. So these, these things are very much there. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Chinese government keeps on persisting with their policies. And uh, uh, we hope that maybe we should operate their head and put some common sense mm -hmm. into their head. That's the only thing that is necessary to resolve this. Do you think that the policies of the Chinese government towards the people of Tibet can be described as genocide? Definitely. That is why I always say, of course, in East Turkestan, there was this huge you know, uh, industrial scale uh, concentration camps. In situation in Tibet is different because East Turkestan, you have more people, you have more resources, more industries, more dense people. Tibet is very large, as I said before, and we are all scattered in different places, so the situation are different. But what China is doing now in terms of Tibetan language, in terms of Tibetan religion, where the government wants to be responsible to recognize reincarnated lamas, there's so many Buddhist countries in the world, and we are the only one who has this very unique tradition of reincarnation, of looking for the same spirit in a boy or girl after the, in the next life. So China wants to be responsible. That's why China, His Holiness, you know His Holiness always says, very, uh, says a lot of things in jest. And His Holiness said, if the Chinese government is really serious about looking for the Dalai Lama's this 14th Dalai Lama Sri Inka, they are, not they, are not worried. they are not bothered about the 14th who is living now. They are more focused on the 15th Dalai Lama that's yet to come. So His Holiness said, if the Chinese government is really serious, then they should study Buddhism first. <laughs> they have to understand the concept. Then, if Chinese government is really serious, they should look for Mao Zedong's reincarnation first. Then maybe Teng Xiaoping. Then maybe the Dalai Lamas. <laughs> So it is definitely a very, very serious situation where uh, cultural genocide is definitely going on. Do you, you mentioned East Turkestan. Do you do much work with um, the other oppressed ethnic and cultural minorities in China, like the Uyghurs, the Kyrgyz, Tajiks, Inner Mongolians, um, Manchu, as you mentioned earlier? Do you do much work with the organizations that represent them outside of China? Um, 
We have, the, it's a long history, long story about how all this evolved. So many decades ago, there was, uh, uh, they formed this group called the Allied Group of Tibetans, Uyghurs, and Mongols. And then it diminished in its importance over time. And then there was this UNPO, the Unrepresented Nations People's Organization, which is also started by Tibetans' involvement. Uh, this is still going on, but uh, it's not, uh, uh, I don't know, as, as proactive as it used to be. And now uh, we are still discussing uh, with the Uyghurs. Uh, I have known Rebia Kadir for a long time. Now Dolkun is there. And there are also several groups. The problem with some of, now I'm glad that Uyghurs have also formed this government in exile in the line of Tibetan government in exile, or Central Tibetan administration. But with Hong Kongers also, I tell Hong Kongers, they are all young people, they are all educated people, they are very energetic people, but they have to organize themselves. We have the experience of having lived in exile for the last 63 years. Now you are just coming out and you are scattered all over. I meet your people in Canada, in US, here, everywhere. Now you have to organize yourself in such a way that you can be effective to counter China. Otherwise, it's very difficult. Even for us also, it is because of His Holiness Dalai Lama's leadership and his visionary uh, thinking that brought us up to this level. Even if we are very small in number, the Uyghurs are much more in number, right? Hong Kongers, I don't know how many are there now in the diaspora community, but we definitely need to work by at least if, of course, all our cases are different, all our backgrounds are different, all our ask also may be different, but at least if we could meet once in a year, a show of force somewhere in Europe, in any part of Europe, it's okay, because Europe needs to be awakened. I blame the Americans, I blame the Europeans, I blame the Japanese, I blame the Taiwanese also for creating this monster called China today. So I tell government, I request governments, we request governments that there should be transatlantic cooperation, not competition. Because we created that monster, so we all have to work towards containing that. It's US alone cannot do it. Now China has become very powerful. Right? And you also have to take all democracies and value-based countries along with you. And we also tell governments, please don't treat us only as victims of Chinese communism. If you can look positively, you can treat us as partners in bringing about positive changes in China. If you have to bring positive changes in China in future, then we are the stakeholders, those who are in Tibet, who are in Mongolia, who are in East Turkestan, Hong Kong, we are all internal forces, because to bring change, you need both internal and external forces. Now, if you can look at us as partners, then we can be also useful in cooperating with other governments. For those of you who are interested, we are hosting a panel on the Uyghur genocide uh, on the 23rd of February, and it'd be great to see many of you um, there. Final question from me, Your Excellency, before I open up to questions from the floor, is um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is obviously the um, the sort of spiritual head of the Tibetan government in exile and of the Tibetan people and of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and it was a great honor for the Oxford Union to welcome His Holiness about seven or eight years ago. 
Um, but His Holiness is obviously getting on in age. Uh, and as you mentioned, with the, with the Chinese government wanting to play a role in the picking of the 15th Lama uh, and the interventions they have done with finding other bodhisattvas in um, Tibet, what happens to the Tibetan government in exile uh, and to um, the Dalai Lama when the 14th Dalai Lama dies? Now, His Holiness, since 1969, has made it very clear and it has been consistent that whether there will be the 15th Dalai Lama or not will be decided by the Tibetan people. So that's still a very consistent position. Now that His Holiness is 87, he reassured us many times, many times, not just one or two times, that he's going to live long. And there are also, um, uh, I don't know how to put it exactly, but uh, some pre-signed that this Dalai Lama will live very long. So there are indications there that he may live up to 113. And His Holiness is also, he, even now, he keeps assuring us that he will live for another two decades, no problem. <laughs> so except for his knee, every other faculty is all right. And uh, yeah, he definitely, and he has this wish. So I keep telling the Tibetan people, His Holiness has this wish to live long. Now it's up to us, because in Buddhism, you have to relate the, the, the equation of the relationship between the master and the disciple. You know, so if the relationship is good, then the master will also feel that if, it will help you know, if I live long. It's not, His Holiness doesn't want to live long just for himself. He, he wants to live long for the benefit of the world and for, particularly for the Tibetans, if you look, look from a smaller perspective. So that is the reason why he wants to live long. So it's not definitely going to happen this Dalai Lama will live very long, so it's not definitely going to happen during my tenure or the next 10 years. So having said that, of course, uh, the demise of this 14 Dalai Lama is going to be very, very consequential for the Tibetan struggle as a whole. But then there will be a next Dalai Lama. You know, and His Holiness has made it very clear that he will be born only in a free world. So China, if it doesn't become free, there's no possibility of this Dalai Lama being born there. So when I was in the United States, uh, some political, some leaders, uh, they asked me, you don't have to seem to have a process in place. So I told him, that's your perspective. But some of us in the Tibetan community who knows China, and Indians who knows China, they said that, the, they said that the, the, the decision that His Holiness has taken now is very wise. Because China cannot handle unpredictability. If His Holiness decides from now itself as to what he is going to do, or this, set the process in motion, then China will use all its force, internationally and nationally, to tell people that what they want to tell. So that is one thing. And then I also told that gentleman, it is His Holiness who is going to be reborn. So we have to respect His wishes. You know, so those two points are there. And we have come out with a six-point announcement, uh, our position on His Holiness. So as 
Central Tibetan administration, we will also not be involving in the process of the selection of the Dalai because it's purely religious matter and a ritualistic matter. But that's best left to whoever His Holiness instructs to take over, particularly the uh, <clears throat> clergy who will be responsible for the selection of the reincarnation uh, whenever that happens. And uh, yes, in between that time, till the next Dalai Lama comes of age to take responsibility, not in the traditional sense, but in a uh, uh, future sense, th there will be some time. So that is the reason why His Holiness, not even one year after coming into exile, under very, very difficult circumstances, you can imagine 1959, March 17th, His Holiness left Lhasa, reached Indian border on March 31st, and then some 80,000 Tibetans came out. Tibetans have never gone out, except for pilgrimage you know, to Buddhist centers. And those are very few and far, in, far between. So we were going through very, very difficult times of rehabilitation. Many people died because we are not used to Indian climate or Indian food. So we were put up in the Himalayas for road construction. That's the only thing we know, hard labor. We had no skill whatsoever. And even during those difficult times, His Holiness introduced democracy. He said we should, on second, 3rd of February, 1960, His Holiness said we should have representative government. And six months from that time, we had the first parliament. So even today, we celebrate 2nd of September as Democracy Day. Because that was the day when the first parliament took oath of office. And since then, His Holiness had to face many challenges in, in uh, promoting and uh, progressing our democracy, but we managed to reach to this level where His Holiness has been watching us, caring for us, and also seeing when it's a good time to devolve. So he has been devolving since 91, 2001, and 2011. He decided that he will devolve all his political and administrative responsibilities, and these responsibilities now lie in the hands of the elected leadership. So I'm not just talking about the Sikyong. All, all the elected leadership. And uh, that is what he, His Holiness has been preparing us for, for the last 63 years. Now, if we live up to his expectation, then we will be able to follow and carry forward the Tibetan struggle. And that is up to us, young Tibetans who are sitting here, and us. Um, thank you very much, Your Excellency. I'll now look to a few questions from the audience, don't worry, you've got, got more time yet. Um, um, any questions we have, but we give it back to your honor. We have time for a few questions from that, the audience. That helps in this cold weather. <laughs> um, you were very quick up with a hand, the member in the North Face coat to my right, so yeah. Oh, we have a microphone. Uh, um, my country, Nepal, currently hosts around 4,000 to 9,000 Tibetan refugees. Uh, and currently, China is pressuring Nepal to sign various treaties uh, to restrict the activities of re refugees, especially after the Chinese president visited Nepal in 2019. 
And you just mentioned that you cannot even uh, enter to Nepal. So in these situations, what does your role and work mean to these people who are losing their basic human rights, like the right to expression even on exile? You're from Nepal. I sometimes feel really sorry for Nepal. Uh, I feel sorry for ourselves, of course, we lost our country. <laughs> and Nepal is independent. But still, Nepal doesn't have its independence. <laughs> you know, so you have your traditional friend, India, who had been supplying all the basic essentials. And now Chinese have started using their influence on Nepal. So you are stuck. You are sandwiched, just like Mongolia is between Russia and China. Nepal is also stuck between India and China. But I always believe that India's intentions are not bad at all. India's intentions are good. But maybe a lot of things don't land on the ground, what they support. But the Chinese government is more smart, so they give all, you, all the things that you can see. The ring road, this building, that building is built by Chinese government, that building is... And now, downtown Nepal, Tamil, has become a Chinese downtown city. All populated by Chinese, Chinese business people coming in. And now with Chinese government trying to extend this railway from Shiritsi, from inside Tibet into Kathmandu, they are doing right now, there are a lot of talks about feasibility tests and all that. So I think Nepal has to maintain its independence first. And for that, you have to have a strong government. And right now, Nepal has, because of the proportionate representation, you also now will be king of coalition governments in that region, just like Japan is in the East. You know. So I think Nepalese, they really have to stand up on their feet and decide for themselves instead of others deciding for you. And uh, there are only about 10,000 Tibetans now inside Nepal. And uh, we have a lot of problems with the Nepalese government. Because those who came after 95, they are not issuing any documents. So we don't have the Tibetans who are born after 95 doesn't have any documents. Those who are born before 19, uh, 1995, they, they have problems in reissuance of these documents. So because of lack of these documents, they are not able to join schools or job, get jobs. and. A lot of problems we have in Nepal, but we are trying to solve, solve it through diplomatic. Uh, there are other embassies, many embassies are working together to work with the Nepalese government to see how best they can help the Tibetans also. So we are grateful to the Nepalese government. We have been neighbors, uh, we are historically neighbors. So, uh, but at the same time, I think Nepal needs to. Uh, next question, uh, the member on the end of the bench, uh, to my left, yeah, oh, yeah, that's you, yeah, 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 you, you, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your presentation and your perseverance. Um, in a context of sino-assimilation, what is being done to uh, ensure that traditional Tibetan monastic culture and the contemplative life is still attractive to those either living within Tibet or, or is available to them. Um, what is being done to keep that lineage alive? I get it fully. Can you, can you just um, put it? What's being done to keep Tibetan monastic culture alive inside and outside ah. of Tibet? Now, inside Tibet, uh, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, most of the monasteries were destroyed, except for few. 
then in the 80s, when uh, Hu Yaobang was there in China as a party premier, he sent people to study the situation inside Tibet, whether what the cadres and the leaders in that region informs the central leadership, whether that's true or not. And he found that it was not true. The Tibet situation has become worse than before 1959. So he decided to send back almost 75% of the Chinese cadres back to Tibet, back to China. So there was some brief period from 19, in the 80s when we had a short respite and uh, pension after Mao's death in 1976, Deng Xiaoping came in, he tried to introduce a little more liberalism and then uh, there was also, uh, we, we could also send some exploratory teams into Tibet to explore negotiation. Just before that we sent some delegation for uh, fact-finding delegations and two, three fact-finding in the early 80s. Um, now, during the Cultural Revolution, many monasteries were destroyed. Now, most of these monasteries we have managed to replicate in India. So the place where I come from in South India, one of the council members, where is Disha? Uh, Disha is somewhere. So she's my host, actually. She comes from Karnataka state, and I live in that state. I was born there. Um, so in some of these settlements, we have huge monasteries with 5,000, 6,000 monks, even now in India. In Tibet, now the number of monks and nuns have come down, which used to be several thousand, has come down, to, dwindled down to 200, 300, 400, not more than that. Some of the institutions that came up later in Eastern Tibet, where they were talking about more than 10,000 monks, uh, have been closed down by the Chinese government because it's not just the Tibetans, but Chinese, a lot of Chinese students also joining these institutions. Now, inside Tibet, there has been, of course, a lot of renovation of buildings. So the facade is there of monasteries being rebuilt and colored and all that. But what is necessary is inside, you know, your right to study, practice. Now, everything, the curriculum is being decided by Communist Party. The management of the monasteries are now taken over by the intelligence security uh, agencies. And there is strict surveillance because these, are, these places are a little sensitive for the, Tibetan, for the Chinese government. In, in the West, you have students coming out to protest, but in the Tibet, it's the monks who come out to protest. So uh, their movements are restricted. You need at least five different permits to travel from one place to another, where in, in, in free Tibet, it, you can travel to any part of Tibet and preach your knowledge. Now that is being restricted. They want to be responsible for reincarnation also, as I mentioned before. So everything is being... And now, the, of course, uh, it's one religion. So it's Buddhism with Chinese characteristics. So everything with Chinese characteristics, they think they can justify everything with that statement, unfortunately. But, but there's no real learning in Tibet. It's very difficult. Now, since 2018, I think, the Tibetans who are studying in these big monasteries in India and Nepal and Bhutan, they used to go back to Tibet. Now, it's not possible. All the passports have been taken away inside Tibet. Now, I hear some rumors that they might redistribute it back, but People cannot travel. Very difficult. 
think we have time for one more question. Um, we'll go <coughs> to the member in the hat who was, thought was the man in the hat. Does it delay? But then, such a member turn la. Can Oxford the paper pay go chong any turn la day? Nindi pemi jagram papi any yugar dam salan nindi paper la any does it delay? Ngatu pay go chong shuyen. I would like to welcome His Excellency Sejong Bamaterangla here. I'm very proud to have you here and honored to have you here. And actually, I'm very grateful um, to Oxford Union to kind of uh, lending uh, a kind of caring ear to the Tibetan uh, story. Uh, I just would like to actually ask, because you focused on some of the kind of historical dimensions of Tibetan, Sino-Tibetan relations, I just want to like to maybe ask a counterfactual kind of history, what if kind of history question. I'm wondering, you know, if Tibet, do you think Tibet would have been able to defend its cultural sovereignty and semi-political sovereignty if we had received uh, support like the Ukraine is receiving, military, emotional, financial support um, that maybe Ukraine is not receiving much, but still they're receiving. So I'm just wondering if Tibet had received that much assistance in that variety, they would have been able to defend it uh, and preserve its cultural sovereignty. That, that's my first question. Second question is related to it. If we get a fraction of that assistance, will we be able to protect our civilization and our sacred landscape that, as you mentioned, is the, you know, the third pole and the roof of the world and the source of so many rivers and everything? I'm just wondering, will we be able to do that if we if we can, then how can we get a tiny fraction of that assistance? Thank you. You can possibly leave or stay, so in the way of the camera. Of course, since the Ukraine crisis came up, many questions. It's very unfortunate. I'm sure nobody in Europe expected that because I met several leaders and everybody has been saying that we have not been able to read the writing on the wall since 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea. And then since then they have been saying the next is Ukraine and nobody took notice of that. Only when it happened, then it struck everybody and everybody was in a way kind of taken unawares. So, uh, the parallel between Tibet and Europe, of course, uh, with Ukraine, uh, what, what has happened, we know. But in Tibet also, it was the same aggression by force. Now, his question was, if there had been support like what Ukraine is getting today, would Tibet, uh, Tibetans have been 
able to defend their country. Now it's very difficult to compare the, because one happened 63 years ago, 62 years ago, and one is happening now, so it was a totally different situation. Tibet is located somewhere where neighbors are very far away. Ukraine is a big country in Europe, but the surrounding neighbors are also nearby, all there to uh, you know, intervene if they need to. So the situation of Tibet and Ukraine in terms of geographical location and size and all that are very different. And Tibetans were not very well organized militarily in 1950. If we had been, or if we had been as united, then we would have been able to repel the Chinese away, even at that time, even without outside assistance, we would have, because it was several some 30, 40,000 Chinese army at that time. And there's six million Tibetans. If we, uh, it's not like Tibetans are all Buddhists and they don't take up any violence. There have been a lot of history of uh, violence also in Tibetan history and from seventh to ninth century, we were warriors, you know, of the, those times. So it was only our thinking which was sub subdued. And of course there were also, we always talk about motivation whenever we take up any action. So if your motivation is good, we could have done that. But unfortunately, comparing it now is just a wishful thinking. You know, if even today, I would say, if the whole international community does not repeat this statement that Tibet is part of PRC and they are willing to help the Tibetans, make Tibetans as partners, I'm sure we'll be able to succeed. The second question was about environment, whether uh, would, if there is more involvement from the United Nations, would it be more um, effective to, uh, to preserve Tibet, Tibet's culture? Now, even United Nations, I, I'm sorry to say, but I, in Geneva itself, I said United Nations is one of the most undemocratic institutions in this world. So I've no. F <laughs> it's most undemocratic, and also we say one of my predecessors also used to say that the United Nations is like a human body without arms and legs. <laughs> so it takes its own decisions, but not able to implement it. And one of its own uh, big five <laughs> goes against all the international rules, and there's nothing that the international community can do. Whereas people like us, we have no representation. We cannot go into United Nations. We cannot be represented there. We always have to ride piggyback on some other NGO to present our case. That is the sad situation that we are in, unfortunately. I had, I, of course, there is the United Nations, there is the Charter, it's all well written, all that, but it's implemented only on those countries that they can force themselves on, not on others who don't listen to them. So it's very difficult to say whether UN, UN intervention would have been more useful or not useful. At one time, Michelle Bachelet was not even mentioning Tibet. It was not coming here, unfortunately. So I met one of the leaders in the United Nations, and then we, we spoke for more than an hour, and he still wanted to talk more, but uh, there was no time. So as I was leaving, he was telling it's very informative, I'm learning so much, we need to talk, I hope your visit is successful. 
I said whether my visit is successful or not will depend on what will happen after I leave this door. If Michelle Bachelet mentions Tibet, then I would consider my visit a success. So this just happened just midnight. <laughs> midnight, they come out with this Xinjiang report. I, I refuse to call it Xinjiang because uh, the right word is, is, is Turkestan and Uyghur people. Xinjiang is the name given by the Chinese government to that region. And Xizhang is the name that Chinese government has given to Tibet. And when you talk about sinification and sinicization, Chinese government does not leave even names of places. So if you read Global Times now, they won't write Tibet. They don't. They write only Xizhang, hoping that this will become popular internationally. But when they write Xizhang, nobody understands what Xizhang is. So, of course, internationally, everybody is using word Tibet. So, these are small things which adds up to the larger thing. So, I refuse to word, use the word uh, Xinjiang. So, I was some, one Xinjiang foreign minister also write, wrote to our department saying, why is Tibetan government using Xinjiang? We are not using that. If somebody writes and we reproduce that article, it comes there. But otherwise, they should have been the force to tell the United Nations it should be East Turkestan report or Uyghur report, not Xinjiang report. You know? But you know what happened. Forget about implementing any part of its recommendations. They couldn't even have a discussion in the United Nations, unfortunately. And that's the state that the United Nations is in. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking His Excellency Penpatsaring for this evening.